Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Ladies and gentlemen, I am delighted this week to have an entrepreneur and someone who has thrown himself wholeheartedly into the whole recruitment and investment world. And I, I found it fascinating working with him. It's a real privilege to have him on. Without further ado, I'll let him introduce himself. Hi, Jonathan. Great to be here. Um, my name is Jamie Woods. I'm the founder and chief executive of JCW Group. Um, we're a recruitment company. I set this business up back in my apartment in 2007 as a one-man band. Uh, I've grown it to where we are now, which is a you know, much bigger organization spread across uh, five offices in Europe and the US. Uh, and more latterly, I'm also founder and chief executive of a company called Search Capital, which is a human capital investment business. Um, and basically, we uh, buy and fund uh, organizations of various different sizes uh, within the world of human capital. Um, and that's all over the world. We've got five portfolio companies at the moment. Uh, throw all these different businesses together. Uh, we've got about 300 people, seven offices, uh, and they're looking to grow fairly substantially this year as well. Well, it's a, a fantastic time for you, Jamie, and there's sort of lots of stretch and growth and and uh, you've had a a lot of success for which I congratulate you. And even if you haven't had success every year, you're always learning uh, from what goes on, which is what makes an inspiring leader. And, and Jamie, in your experience, who have you found to be an inspiring leader? And, and what would you, how would you define it to you, the, the qualities of someone you found inspiring? Um, I think, so reflecting on inspiring leadership, I think I think it boils down to two, two different things for me. So crucially you you need you need the actual success there mm -hmm. uh so having having someone who's a, a super inspirational individual but doesn't actually correlate with the results doesn't ultimately for me at least translate to in, inspiring leadership you need success uh, a consistent track record of success you know it's never going to be continuous 100 percent success but you want you know someone who wins more than they lose is over a period of time and if you know they've got the t-shirt on that front and i think also crucially for me it needs to be because doing the work that I've done as a uh, recruiter for a quite a long time now, you, you get to meet a lot of people. You know, you get to meet a lot of leaders across all sorts of different industries uh, with all sorts of different backgrounds. And I think to be inspirational, you don't just need someone who's got that track record of success. You need someone who's done it in an environment which has actually required the ability uh, to motivate, to lead, um, uh, and to build effective teams. And in, interestingly, that's not always the case with some industries out there. In my experience, you know, in some industries, you can be very successful, but you can also be a terrible leader at the same time. You know, you might be successful because you've got a particularly great idea that's attracted lots of funding, or you might have loads of capital uh, and you're really good at striking deals, for example. Mm. Um, but to me, to be a proper inspirational leader, you need to be someone who's got the success coupled with a real strong ability to motivate others to build harmonious teams uh you know to to keep people together for the long term to you know build towards a common goal yeah i, I really agree with that it made me think about a number of situations one 
is obviously with some of the politicians we've got at the moment around the world, where we go, but they're appalling leaders, but they happen to be in charge of your country. How did they get there? Uh, you get the politicians you deserve, someone said, and I think we've been cruelly let down by what we people feel we deserve. But then the other thought was, uh, I thought of a time where I had a, uh, a Russian uh, who was working in investment banking, he found me out and came and asked me to coach him. And uh, before we began, I was just doing some discussion with him. And he described his bosses in this in very famous investment bank. And I said, sounds like they're white collar psychopaths. And he goes, really? Mm. And I said, mm. here's the list. And, and he looked through the list and he went, yes, 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 yes. He said, can you teach me? And I said, of course, I'll teach you how to avoid these kind of people, how to really keep away from them. No, no, he said, I want to be like them. I go, no, that's not what wow. I do. <laughs> and I showed him the door. I found someone else who uh, had a different way of doing things. He was happy to help him, but I was not mm -hmm. going to do that. And uh, so, yeah, you're right. Um, they may be successful. doesn't make them necessarily a good leader. Just like no. that saying, all leaders are readers, but not all readers are leaders. Because uh, I think I think you like reading as much as as uh, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, your life journey, um, you know, your life journey defines you. Uh, you know, there you were, two thousand and seven, uh, starting up a business, and you know, here we are, just a few years later, with uh, considerable success. So, where did it come from? You know, what were what were the people who brought you up like, um, and and maybe your grandparents? Where what kind of culture was there, and was there this? drive for success um tell us a bit about your life really joe yeah um so like to be honest i've had a i've had a fairly privileged life um i was born in born in surrey uh raised in london till i was about seven um then my parents uh moved over to devon so i kind of grew up in the country from ages seven through to 18 um only child very sort of stable household um and then i left um <clears throat> i left devon at 18 to go to university in london and, and basically have, have effectively stayed in london ever since i think i mean i've been asked this question a few times as far as you know what what was it in my upbringing that uh led me to sort of do what i ended up doing um career-wise um I don't, I don't really have an answer to be honest I, there isn't like a, a key formative moment that i can point to um where it was sort of a before and after moment i think you know something something that definitely happened um that i credit my parents for is they somehow raised me to be a very confident person um and I, i've read i've read before that that's a trait that you do sometimes get in only children so i don't know if that necessarily helps but i don't know how but they raised me to be a very confident person you know there was never it was never really acceptable to talk in any way that was sort of talking myself down at all. Mm. Um, you know, it was always drummed into me that I could basically achieve anything I wanted to achieve. Uh, you know, the world wasn't against me at all. The world was there for the taking. Um, and I just had um, this very high level of confidence for kind of as long as I can remember, certainly from sort of adolescence onwards. Mm. Um, and, you know, that, clearly fed into you know life in mm. business you know had a real big impact and allowed me to make some fairly uh, you know so, some of the decisions I look back on for example example the decision to 
set up a business in recruitment with actually only two years experience. So I I set this, I set JCW up when I was 24. Um, You know, looking back on that, it was, it was bonkers, Mm. you know, really like it's, it's, there was clearly an outrageous level of confidence there Mm -hmm. um, at a fairly young age. And, you know, it all, it all obviously worked out for the best, but still I can look back fairly clear eyed now and and realize what a slightly crazy decision that was. So I don't know, I, I couldn't really, I couldn't really bottle it as far as how I was brought up mm. in that way, but there was clearly something in the way I was raised, which, you know, gave me a slightly unusual level of confidence. Yeah. And what was it both your parents did? I mean, when they're in Devon and in London, what, what, what kind of careers have they had? Um, so they were both actually, so in, in, um, in London, my mum was the secretary and my dad was uh, worked for Shell um, yeah. as a surveyor. So he was uh, responsible for, uh, buying land for Shell, so if they if they needed a new petrol station in an area or something like that, he'd go and scope out whether they should pay a certain amount of pounds per square foot or mm. or something like that. So, um, you know, we're not. I think we're quite we're quite we're different people, my parents and I. So you know, I don't think either of them had quite the obsession with work mm. that I would say. I probably do. Um, and also, you know, when 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 we moved to Devon, we moved to Devon because my dad had retired. He retired yeah. early. So again, for for my from seven to eighteen, it wasn't as if I was there like observing my parents working hard or 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 doing a business or anything like that. Um mm. so like yeah, I had a I had a great childhood. Um, yeah. you know, and I'd say an an idyllic childhood as well, because we grew up right in the middle of nowhere right in the countryside but it wasn't a it wasn't like a a classic entrepreneurial childhood where i'm observing all this sort of business goings on and yeah. workings and all the rest of it. it wasn't like that at all no well it, the nice thing is that there is from my experience all the entrepreneurs there's no classic there, there is certain things that influence certain people um but what about grandparents anything about in the grandparents that you ever saw as you brought were brought up um no to be honest no because my um I didn't know I never met my my grandfather on my dad's side I only knew my grandmother on my dad's side till I was about eight or something Mm. um and my grandfather on my mum's side I only knew him till I was I think four or five Mm. uh and I knew my man my I knew my nan's side on uh on my mum's side for quite quite a while yeah a bit longer I think she died when I was 18 or something um but you know she she was a she was a great nan for the most part but not someone that I can necessarily tie any real character traits to yeah being completely honest okay okay no that's thank you for that and then uh, stepping back from it all looking at uh learnings from a proudest moment a happiest moment in your life thus far and and also from a dark moment in your personal life or or work, what did you learn from each of those? What did they teach you? Um, so so interestingly, when we talk about proudest moments, I my brain doesn't really work like that. I don't really. I get asked fairly frequently, like whether I feel proud about you know something, um, and. Yeah, my brain doesn't really work like that. It's not as if I'm walking around, you know, with a sort of persistent state of self-loathing or anything like that. You know, I can be content in my achievements. And I can be, I can, I can be proud of having achieved something. Um, but 
you know, whenever I've achieved anything, let's say, you know, uh, let's say I had a particularly strong performance in business or something like that, you know, I'm acutely aware of all the different things that I could have done better. I'm, I'm very much aware of other people out there who've done better who have been more successful, done it or done it quicker or done it with more finesse or whatever. Um, and it, I, I never really, I don't know. I don't know if my brain almost equates too much pride with a sense of sort of resting on my laurels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think if I, uh, I don't know. I think I think that's one of the reasons why I probably got a lot of drive is that I just don't never really sit down and, and sit there and, and feel particularly proud of myself. As far as um, as far as Dartmoor, I mean, there's I think anyone who anyone who builds anything of any kind of scale has, has gone through plenty of ups and downs and can point to all sorts of um, mistakes made and uh, you know lessons learned. I think for me, there is a real formative dark period in. I always forget the exact year. It was either the beginning of 2017 or the, or sorry, the end of 2017 or the end of 2016. But long story short, um, I had this awful Christmas where it we sailed pretty close to the wind as a business, um, and you know, effectively almost it almost came crashing down. And I think the reality of the situation became clear going into Christmas. So I basically had to spend the the two weeks of Christmas like um completely emerged in spreadsheets trying to work what's going on um and it i remember i remember like it was yesterday the sort of feeling of of dread basically that after all this work that had been put into it that everything could be coming crashing down and it could all be it could all be for nothing um and what what basically happened is we'd gone from a business where in the first sort of five six years were yeah, exceptional performance, winning awards, everyone's superly happy, you know, great financial situation. Um, and then almost sleptwalked over the following few years into a state where I'd become quite accepting of like very mediocre, if not bad performance, you know, over a period of time, you know, nothing sudden. And then finding myself in this situation, uh, you know, whenever it was, or actually uh the the this this the state of the business was basically um unsustainable and yeah that that feeling of terror um it it was kind of a good thing because you know it woke me up and i came back in january made some changes in the business um significantly increased expectations across the board and basically since then we've we've never looked back like it was a real transfer it was a transformational moment not just for me but um for the organization as well and i think one of the reasons why it was such a pivotal moment is i do still remember now that feeling you know how bad that feeling was that everything that you've worked towards is potentially going to end up effectively for nothing um, and it's a very useful lesson to have learned because when you find yourself sometimes slipping uh, in terms of the expectations you have or the, the kind of standards that you're applying to the business, remembering what the potential consequences are if you're not setting your expectations high enough. I do remember that ever so clearly. And it, it's, 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 it's definitely the clear sort of formative dark moment I could point to that mm-hmm. still plays out today. Yeah, it is interesting that many entrepreneurs and leaders um, often have that that sense of uh, dread and things that mm-hmm. they they're chased by the demons they're chased by, which push them on for higher and higher performance. And and I know at times when I've looked back in my own performance and what I've done, 
there has been that element of not wishing to fail but wanting to succeed it's a, a sort of mm. away from and towards kind of drivers yeah. um i think i think sometimes i think sometimes as well with with success it, it's quite easy to sort of start to believe in in your own invulnerability mm-hmm, or that mm-hmm. you're somehow ordained to get to where it is that you're heading mm-hmm. um and so yeah i think for me that was a very important lesson that actually you can't take anything for granted yeah just because you you think you deserve something it doesn't mean anything yeah no, no and it can all come crashing down a very healthy um kind of reality check in with yourself so that's a great bit of advice for all of us and for entrepreneurs and business people uh going forward but also jamie you, you talked about starting your own business when you were 24 back in 2007 but um if you went back to see yourself as a 16 year old or 18 year old, that kind of period of mm. quite significant uh, step in people's lives, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give yourself about what was, what mattered and what didn't matter? Um, I think it's if I, if I look at all the different skills that I had kind of on day one versus the skills that I needed as my career went on that I maybe didn't have um i think probably the the one skill that took me longer than it should have done to develop but had a big impact on how successful i ended up being was um sort of organization and time management mm-hmm. um I, I just you know if if fundamentally boils down to discipline and discipline is something that you know i'm now pretty good at but i think you know if i look back if i really lent on myself at that young age about, you know, how important, um, you know, organization and, and, and diligence is on actually being productive. Cause what I, you know, what I, what I found is I, um, you know, the early few years of my career, I had a, an impeccable work ethic. So I was working all the hours under the sun and, you know, I had a, I had a, a good approach to quality. So like the quality of my work was continually improving and those two things combined, um, led to a positive result. But what I didn't really have, I didn't have great organizational discipline. So, you know, my my productivity wasn't quite as high as it could be. And, and being completely honest, I probably only really got good at this about four or five years ago um, as the business got more and more complex and it just became completely untenable to be anything other than than well-organized. But I think if I look back, if I had, yeah, if there was some kind of intensive education I could have gone through when I was younger then I think that could have had a potential fairly substantial impact on things yeah and um also many of the entrepreneurs and leaders listening having to balance work and life and I'm talking to you you're in a I think a nice hotel in Texas but you're about to go on to Los Angeles as Mm -hmm. you fly around uh the uh the global business um but also if I'm right recently you have another addition to the family and uh, that yeah. also puts extra strain. Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. So I've had, um, I've got, I've got two daughters. I've got one nine-year-old and one uh, six-month-old. Um, and yeah, I, I guess I'm, I like, like most parents, if not all parents, like being being a high-quality parent is pretty much top of the list in terms of priorities. Um, not always a priority that goes hand in hand with business success or career success. Um, 
yeah it's tough it's tough it's tough to juggle it you know you need to, you need to make you need to make a lot of time um and i don't really i'm definitely i'm I'm not the i think i do well at it i'm not the expert and it's very difficult especially with my uh my inclinations in work ethic like i generally always want to be working more and more in order to tackle a particular problem um but at the same time that's that completely clashes with i always want to spend more and more time with my daughters as well uh, it's tough and to be fair that's another thing that that factors into the whole organization thing like you need to be very effectively organized if you want to yeah. Uh, you know walk and chew gum at the same time um, <laughs> for example build a business and also be like a a present and positive parent as well um, tough but very much doable though yeah very much doable yeah. in my experience I don't, I don't think it's a choice you have to make at least not not as a man yeah and I and I think a lot of people look back and go success is getting what you want but happiness is wanting what you already have and I think a lot of people have a lot of things that others would love to have, but they never kind of value it enough or are mm-hmm. present enough with those people, whether it be children or partners um, or other family members until they've gone. Um, they, they read, I mean, I think of my brother, David, who died last year. And, you know, uh, we had many conversations, but I could have spent more time with him. And mm-hmm. you know, suddenly within 10 weeks from diagnosis of cancer to, to death, he, he was gone. And I only had mm-hmm. the chance to visit him once before he died and it's often late in life we 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 realize that some of the things how will you measure your life is a very good book by uh forgot the guy's name but christiansen is the surname mm-hmm. uh, and it's well worth a read he's a harvard professor as he was come to the end of his life looking back over how, how are you going to measure it um thinking about lives uh if there's one thing you could change in your life and you could live it again what would you change or you've mentioned a crucible moment uh, when you had that uh, that fear and dread of of the business was slowly drifting over a cliff if you didn't do something about it, but but if there's anything you could change, would you change anything, Jamie? Um, it's a bit of a cliche answer, maybe, but no, I wouldn't. Like, there's you know, look back on life, there's countless mistakes, um, errors, um, you know regrets i think i think when when people look back and say they've got absolutely no regrets in life then i think i would i would wonder to what extent they're actually learning from the the mm. mistakes that they've made um so countless countless mistakes made but also very very much recognize that those mistakes have basically made me who i am today and and strengthened me considerably um so you know, if you, you know, I, 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 I'm a quite reflective person, so I'm, I'm definitely think you, you know, you need to look back, and when things go wrong, you need to understand why they went wrong, and and what your, what your part of it was, um, and and learning accordingly. But you know, if you, if you apply that consistently, year on year to your, you know, the way your brain works, then you kind of realise that actually every time you make a mistake, it ends up being a, a positive thing. You, you know, you might, you might prefer it not happen um you might have maybe done things differently with your time again but at the same time it, it has made you a stronger person today it's made you more effective you know if you're thinking pure business terms it makes you a more effective person you know think in personal terms it might make you a nicer person learning through the mistakes that you've made so um no mm. wouldn't it, wouldn't change anything it, it is interesting that uh the mistakes i think i've made over the time and i've made uh, so many of them uh sometimes through poor judgment and of course 
my judgment's been improved by experiences that I've had. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's maybe a bit more cautious um, and reticent about things. I remember being stung in a big sting operation by a woman from Australia who I think she she uh, robbed about 42 of us uh, in the whole mm. property field. And she came across as very persuasive, but she was a psychopath. And she went to jail in the end. I helped to put her, put her in jail wow. behind bars. Uh, because she she robbed so much money from us by promises of things that were never going mm-hmm. to happen, you know, buying property off plan that were going to go massively up, and and all the people you then meet, uh, they're then corrupt as well. It's almost like they're mm. feeding frenzy by sharks, mm. and they realise mm. you've got gullible people who are too, too trusting. So I think at times it can make you a little bit uh, a bit hoarier and more bitter. Uh, yeah. that that you don't get stung so much and you don't quite believe everything that you hear. You want to do a bit more due diligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I sense for you and other entrepreneurs that you have to be pretty hard-assed and, and you have to have some courageous conversations, difficult conversations with people because it's yep. you're, not, you're not running a charity. And indeed, my wife does run a charity. And even in running a charity, you've got to be careful that you don't get taken for granted, that people think they can just show up and you get pay them as you know to do the work mm-hmm. they do but they won't really deliver anything so i think back to your point on success and consistent record and motivation and leading and building and it's very relevant let's go on to moral quotient mq we're going to go around the inspiring leadership compass yeah. beginning with your values your beliefs you know and and what you learned when you slipped up you had a set of values and beliefs but you let it slide and and it wasn't mm-hmm. good. How did you get yourself back on track? And what advice would you give others when they let their values slide and they don't stick yeah. to what they said they were going to do? Yeah. So so for me, this is something that is organic. So it, cha- it changes with time. I think if you spoke to me, you know, three or four years ago, I'd give you maybe a different set of values to what I'd give today. And I'd imagine in another three or four years ago, uh, time, I'll, I'll give you another set of values as well. Um I think my values change with experience. So all those, all those mistakes that we talked about, all those sort of lessons learned, uh, they change with circumstance. You know what what you actually need to be achieving. Uh, it, it you know changes with goals to a certain extent. Um, the you know there tends to be like a consistent vein running through them. But I actually I, I I tend to do an exercise. You know a couple of couple of times a year. Or actually sit down and I'll, I'll write what I perceive my values to be and, you know, analyze them. And do they actually, do they make sense? You know, what else should I be putting them in? And to what extent are they actually really being applied to the way I go about making decisions and the way I go about treating people? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, if I talk about my values now, uh, honesty, honesty is, is, is a clear one. I mean, honesty is maybe not the right word because, it almost implies just not being dishonest, which isn't really what I'm talking about. I think it's being very candid with people in terms of um, what they're doing, what your expectations are of them, you know, how they're meeting up with those expectations. And that refers back to the need to have lots of difficult discussions like you just mentioned, Um, you know, going down the investment route, like I have been, you know, it requires that very frequently, like an incredible amount of clarity that you need to, to give people in terms of what the expectations are and uh you know the extent to which they're matching it so that honesty is and, and also at the same time it's um encouraging that same level of candor in reverse mm. which i think is you know key to really growing to a certain level 
as a leader if you're actually building teams around you that are giving you real honesty in their opinion of things um which you know for the record i, I think is actually also very difficult to do um drive drives a big one i think drive drives one that's probably been in there since day one actually if you'd have asked me this question 10 years ago it'd have definitely been in there um it's a bit of an internet cliche now but sort of being the hardest worker in the room has, has always been something that um it's been a value that i've signed up to i find it a very triggering comment when people talk about when people say things like i like to work smart not hard um because i don't really understand why those are two mutually exclusive things and why you can't just just do the two of them together so work ethic is definitely a, a fundamental part of my value set and i think something that's something that's come to the fore more more recently is i guess you could call it focus that's part that's partly focus day-to-day -day focus to make sure that you know doing things in a productive fashion but i think it's more more importantly strategic focus as in making sure there is a strategic focus in pretty much everything i'm doing business-wise you know why why are we at this meeting why are we doing this project what are we aiming for as a business making sure that we actually are clear in the direction you know what we're about and then making sure that that strategic focus is actually communicated to the wider organization so everyone knows what direction they're going in and that's something that was very much missing if i look through my previous dark dark time example that i gave you know that really was what got lost in those sort of few years of underwhelming performance just there wasn't i wasn't providing that strategic focus of where we wanted to be and mm. and what we we're about so i think yeah. it's those few things now but yeah. you know it will change yeah and it, it, it uh, triggers nicely with um i suppose my upbringing in the military with we always talked about that the german approach the main effort the schwerpunkt where you're putting your best resources and people, and that was going to break through. That was where the business was going to succeed. Your secondary mm -hmm. and your tertiary effort. And when your main effort is blocked, how you quickly switch your main effort that the second or the third one becomes the main effort you reprioritize, but that's where you break through. And, and that links to essentialism by Greg McEwen, a very simple, easy to listen to audio book or book, which is about mm -hmm. this, this idea of what you say no to. So you're very focused on what you are going to be known for. I, I do relate to that. And then thinking about hard workers, I agree with you up to a point. And, and I think Rommel got it right, uh, though in his day he was brutal because it was wartime. But he said there's four types of leaders. There's the, uh, <coughs> there's the stupid and hardworking leader. There's the, um, uh, there's the, uh, the stupid hardworking. I'm being stupid now. There's the... Uh, the bright and hardworking there's the uh the stupid and lazy and there's the bright and lazy and he mm -hmm. said you want to take the 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 stupid but hardworking uh leaders mm -hmm. and, and shoot them they're a liability they'll take you miles in the wrong direction working very hard but they're stupid and they've got the wrong things and the wrong priorities and and they're just taking your business and your your troops to ruin uh, and then you take the lazy and lazy is the wrong term but but maybe mm. um selective but um but bright officers and you promote them to the highest ranks because they'll they'll get things done and they get the right things done i think that's been taken to extremists by people with no moral like yeah. like boris who thinks he can <laughs> be terribly clever and very idle and uh, uh and succeed but but the i'm thinking as well I think I'm sure your success, where I've met some of the members of JCW, 
you you've had a talent for spotting bright and hardworking uh, people and you've got them on your team. So you haven't been doing, and as, as you've gone on, Jamie, you've stepped back and got more strategic and got others to yeah. do bits you don't do because if you're doing it all yourself, you are a limiting factor on your business. And I, yeah. I don't think you've acknowledged quite, I haven't heard you speak of it yet, but you do have a knack for finding good people. When you were 24 and you you had you know small mm-hmm. business, you wouldn't have succeeded unless you'd gone out there and not only found good clients, recruit good clients, but recruit good people who could recruit good clients, don't you think? Yeah, uh, completely. And if I look at if I look at the people that I've hired in the business over the years, like a lot of these people have developed into being, you know, genuine business partners, which was always which was always the intention of this organization when I set it up. I think the I ident I do you know what identifying good people, I I don't know if I've necessarily got a uh, a particular talent for identifying people when they come off the street as to whether they're going to be good or not. You know, that's actually as someone who's interviewed thousands of people and facilitated thousands more of interviews across clients and stuff. That's that's actually a very difficult thing to do to really establish if someone's really going to be the long-term fit. Um, especially, you know, our uh, JCW's main strategy hiring wise is we, we hire, we hire trainees pretty much straight out of university. So, you know, they could be, they could be an excellent candidate, but you know, no matter what they say, they don't really know themselves particularly well yet they don't know really what motivates them what demotivates them so it's it's very much a a bit of a lucky dip as to whether it works Mm. I think I think what so I I think identifying talent to sort of pick the winners is actually very challenging Um, but what you I think what we've done a good job at uh, and I guess what I've done a good job at specifically is, is create an environment where when you do get it right when you do bring the right person on board that your chances of developing them into a long-term success are maximized and your chances of them actually staying with the organization long-term are maximized. And I, I mean, there's a few that, that, you know, got, you know, if I think about the amount of work that I put into the business in terms of thinking about how to do things, I mean, so much of it over the last sort of 15 odd years now has been focused on, right. How can we create that environment, which does those two things, you know, makes people as good as they possibly can be, um, whether that's you're just talking about developing a salesperson when they first first join a business, or whether we're talking about developing someone who can run a you know hundred person office somewhere effectively, um, and also making sure you've got an environment where those people never want to leave. Mm. Um, and you know that the 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 latter is very difficult to do in a recruitment environment because it's a very it's a very it's a very low barrier to entry environment. So it's very easy for someone just to walk out the door into another firm for an extra bit of money um, or even to walk out the door and set up their own bit of uh, set up their own business somewhere much like I did. So you need to provide uh, a very compelling offering to stop that happening. And also crucially in recruitment, all you actually have is your people. So if all your people walked out the next day, you know, you, all your business has gone with them because you know, all your client relationships and all the rest of it effectively go up and smoke. So it's a very high pressure environment where you need to create that kind of, um, cultural binding where you're developing people but also keeping them in the organization keeping them retained and happy yeah i think that is so important and and so many firms are samey samey they're, they're all the same as each other so w- what is it that makes them stay and i think where you've got a place where there is psychological safety where there is a sense of camaraderie and uh, where they feel they're being developed i think that makes mm-hmm. a, a huge difference 
On to the next one round in Inspiring Leadership Compass, PQ, meaning and purpose quotient. What, why do you do what you do, Jamie? You know, what, what's your calling in your vocational life? You know, you've, you've been a founder and the group CEO of a, a very successful recruitment uh, global business. Now you've also been the founder of a search capital business as well. So the group's expanded. You mm -hmm. know, why do you do both those things? What is it? What's the, what's the drive for you? Um, so... Right. If you'd have asked me that question 10 years ago, I would have just said money. Mm -hmm. You know, that that was all that I thought I was really there to do it for. Um, you know, I was I, I was obsessed with buying a Lamborghini, which I had been pretty much obsessed with for as long as I can remember since I was sort of five years old with a little micro machines Lamborghini I used to, to play with. Um, and that was like a real the financial motivation was the, the key driver. At least that's what I thought it was. And then as the business got actually got more successful um i realized fairly quickly that it wasn't really money that that got me motivated it was money was more of an, a nice byproduct of the things that motivated me and if i look at if i look at where i really get enjoyment um right now um a couple of contradictory things i mean I, like most people it's it's very enjoying enjoyable very fulfilling when business is going great you know, when everything's going well, um, it all feels a bit easy. You don't have any kind of massive issues that you're dealing with um, and everything's flying. That's that's naturally quite fulfilling. But I think where um, where I also get real enjoyment professionally is when we're going through a really difficult period, you know, and you're really having to do some sort of swashbuckling in business terms, uh, you know, whether that's dealing with a particularly meaty problem um or even like dealing with a substantial downturn or some huge error that's been made in the business or something like is you know it's the super stressful high pressure distressed scenarios which is probably where i get my most most fulfillment uh, you know a good a good example is q2 2020 when everything when the world is falling apart um with covid wise like it was an in incredible stressful situation um for everyone and like a obviously a massive human cost but from a business perspective it's probably one of the most motivating times for me where you really have you've got all these people that are relying on you for their well-being and you know their their income and all their families that rely on you as a result and the need to sort of step up um, and provide effective leadership in those times, I think is much greater than, you know, in the good times when everything's going well and everyone's happy. So yeah. I, th I think it, I think it's a mixture of those two things. Yeah. And, and how old are you now, Jamie, if you happy to share? 40. Yeah. yeah okay. I turned 40 a couple of months ago. Yeah. Well, congratulations for your birthday recently. And aside from the occasional niggling injury, you've kept yourself extremely fit and healthy. How important is mental health and physical health to you and what tips would you give to other would-be entrepreneurs and successful leaders um so i think i think the two are, i think the two are intertwined i don't think it's like i think the amount uh, the positive impact that physical health has on mental health has been like massively documented already i'd be surprised if if many of your listeners weren't already aware of the connection um you know i i'm quite fortunate i kind of got i got hooked on exercise i think when i was about 2021 20, and i've never really looked back and like yeah aside from the occasional niggling injury i've got the discipline required to 
get up every day and, and basically do something. And that's largely because I have observed how positive an impact it has on my mental state. I think, um, yeah, I, I, I'm blessed with like a relatively level, um, uh, what's the word, level mindset. Don't get outrageously emotional either way, like in downturns or upturns, like I'm, I'm relatively stable. And I think that um, probably makes it a bit easier for me to sort of manage my mental state. Um, but I think something that something that works quite well for me is I, I write a lot mm-hmm. in various different ways. So, you know, I've got a habit at the moment where I write down my my problems Mm-hmm. every week you know they're mainly business problems but you don't have to just be business problems you know what what's playing on my mind right now and what can I maybe do to impact those problems on the week ahead I, f- I think getting that on paper is is pretty useful um I do a reasonable amount of journaling as well so not mm-hmm. every single day but I'll say a couple of d- couple of days a week I put pen to paper and you know write down thoughts feelings observations ideas I find that's that's quite that's quite cathartic. Um, and I'm a big goal setter. Mm-hmm. So I'm all, I'm always, I'm always setting goals, you know, quarterly, weekly, annually life, all sorts of things. And I find, I find that very useful to, especially in a situation where you, you're feeling you're a bit stressed and things are piling up or you're on a bit to sort of remind yourself, actually, what am I doing here? Where am I getting to? What are the, you know, what are the good times are going to look like? But yeah, I've got, I've got, so I've got various little rituals like that, which I think they're largely there just to keep, you know, my mental well-being on the, yeah, on the straight and narrow. Yeah, and and it is uh, goal setting is very important. I'm looking at my 2023, 2024 milestone priorities, and 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 in which order I, I see things with actually Lee and my relationship with her first, then the children, then fitness and health, then some of my key clients and then the podcasts and then winning new clients. But those aren't specifically goals. They're more a priority of how I'm going to focus on things. But it's interesting about goal obsession. We've got to be careful of that. There's, there's the sort of, it's a spectrum, isn't it? And just like we've seen on Into Thin Air, uh, on the Everest uh, crisis of uh, so many people dying, that mm-hmm. you could be so obsessed about the goal of getting to the summit that you forget it's only halfway there. You've got to turn mm-hmm. around and come back down again alive. And, and 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 so I think I do come across leaders who are so obsessed on that that they forget that everything in life is possible if you're prepared to pay the price and live with the consequences. And sometimes the price and the consequences are too high, whether it be marriage, mm-hmm. relationship, failure, uh, impact on children who don't know their mother or their father whatever it might be so it's it's a fine balance which then needs emotional intelligence which is the next question i have for you jamie eq emotional and social intelligence um this is something we all need to work on and certainly very goal obsessed entrepreneurs that i know sometimes have high iq but then maybe not reading their impact on other people or picking up the environment so much or managing their own emotions because they're so driven how have you developed your emotional intelligence and what do you do when you let it slip um so i actually think it's so i mean if i look at my career that there, there is a couple of skills that kind of from day one i was i was pretty good at for one reason or another and i'd say emotional intelligence is one of them and i think when when i when i i don't know the proper dictionary definition of it but when i think about emotional intelligence i'm thinking about you know you, you someone's ability to uh, understand how their words might 
might play out in another person's head, you know, to understand what someone's emotional response is going to be to, you know, events or words or stimuli and all the rest of it. And that's something that I think I've been pretty good at from day one as a manager. Um, and it's something that I think developing it, because whilst, whilst, whilst it's something that I've found relatively comfortable for pretty much all of my career, it's something that as an organization we've had to look at very um very keenly because you know we're there's something like 300 people across the business at the moment so you need lots of managers for those people to be managed and those managers are largely managing salespeople, which in itself is a particularly difficult task um and i know from experience that you can have a manager who is an excellent in all ways but if their emotional intelligence is relatively low then we're going to get difficulties. We're going to get difficulties fairly quickly, no matter how good they are at everything else. Um, so there's been a lot of time and effort spent on our part as an organization as to how do we develop emotional intelligence in people that maybe start off slightly less confident on that front. And being completely honest with you, we don't have the answers there. Yeah, I find it very difficult to, to improve it. Um, I've, I've seen it. We've been successful in it in a few times over just over lengthy periods of time where you're giving people examples of where they perhaps didn't work, didn't operate in a particularly emotionally intelligent way. Um, and you have seen people improve, but it's a very slow going thing. I think if I, if I looking, looking back at my own EQ though, I think one element that probably falls under this, which I think is, um, I guess I've, it's been of interest to me more recently is, is listening, like the ability to listen to others. And I, uh, so, so we as an organization, we take uh, well-being and mental health very seriously. It's like it's a key part of our, our purpose to really make a substantial impact in that space globally. Um, and as part of that, we train up various mental health first aiders across the business. And I myself went through a mental health first aid course a couple of months ago. And as part of that course, there was uh, a listening exercise that we had to undertake where, you know, the context being I basically had to sit there. <clears throat> listen to someone as someone was talking to me about their their problems um and basically just listen so you could you can ask the occasional question to to find out more but you know you can't interrupt you can't um give them your opinion or try and help you've just got to listen and i actually found it incredibly difficult really difficult um you know i, I did well in the context of the exercise because i knew i was getting observed but found it a real struggle. And then when I took that training and applied it to uh, my business life in a, in a completely non-mental health related basis, just when anyone was coming to me with any kind of a problem, all of a sudden I realized that I'm not really that used to listening, you know, especially the, you know, when, you, when you're doing a senior role and people are coming to you with their, their problems very frequently and it's, and it's kind of your job to help them solve those problems. That doesn't always go hand in hand with good listening. You know, you, someone starts talking, you've, you've already kind of calculated what they're going to say. You've already calculated what your advice is going to be. And you're kind of just politely waiting for them to finish for you to then sort of give those pearls of wisdom and then move on to the next problem. Um, and then when, I found that I found that listening exercise very enlightening, uh, specifically in yeah, my experiences in in the sort of days and weeks that followed. When you start to realise actually, yeah, you you may think you've got certain things on lock in terms of emotional uh, quotient, but actually there's still a long way to go for some of them. And I think that listening is still something, still something I'm working on. Jamie, I think we'll be doing it all our lives, and you know, Craig, it's my job as a as a, a broadcaster 
to listen and hear and pick things up. But you have to be very careful that you're not listening to respond. You're listening to ignite their thinking. Uh, and Nancy Klein's work uh, and her, her book, The Promise That Changes Everything, I Won't Interrupt You, is a very profound listen uh, for those who want to do. And, and, and they say that we listen at five levels, to ourself, to the content, to the context, to the unsaid, and to what makes meaning. And people sort of forget that there's many levels of listening. And Oscar Trimboli uh, is a very good guy on this. He does a good podcast about, about listening because we give all these skills on speaking. I'm a speaker coach and mm -hmm. I co coach CEOs to be better speakers. But, but few give you skills at school, in life, in listening. And it's the mm. secret of people's gravitas, presence and EQ. You, you are quite right. Um, on to collaborative, cognitive and cultural intelligence, CQ, uh, diversity, equality, inclusion. It's something that you care very much about, particularly as uh, the firms that are hiring you and your teams want a much broader uh, spectrum of people. Um, what, what is your top tip on this area? Okay. R really, really challenging, I think, this. Um it's a challenging problem anyway, but it's made even more challenging by the fact that the expectations of society are continually changing and advancing. You know, what, what good looks like five years ago is very different to what good looks like today. And it's probably going to be different again in a few years time. Um, yeah, I think, I think my main, my main tip on this is to be clear as an organization in terms of what you want, what you want to achieve uh, realistic at the same time in terms of your various sort of diversity and quality goals, um, to be communicative in those goals. So make sure that you're clearly telling your people where you want to be communicative in terms of the actions that you're taking. Um, and I think, I think the one thing that's worked for us is to just be, just to be pretty candid and honest with the people about it, not just when things are going well, but when they're going less well, because if I, if I look at us in organization in terms of our, you know how we do against our various diversity goals and how objectively diverse an organization we are there's there are some ways in which we do do really well uh and there's others where we're just way behind where we should be and i think the key thing there is you just need to communicate that that's how you're feeling that you know yeah we're proud of achieving a but we're still well aware that we have done a really bad job on b um if you're candid with it if you don't try and sort of cover it up with sort of selling to your people in any way and i think if you just and this you know it comes back down to i guess authentic leadership in a lot of ways but if you're if you can get across the fact that you clearly care about this you're clearly working hard to improve we just need time we just need patience then i think generally people will be pretty um um you know, they'll respect that, you know, yeah. that, that goes, you know, no, I don't think people are necessarily expecting to work for an organization that is perfectly diverse at all times out of the box. Um, they want to be an organization that, that cares a lot about it and is doing what they can to improve. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah, very, very tough field. And I don't think to, to be honest, having had lots of conversations with lots of different people about this topic as the topic has become more and more high profile over the last few years, no one really, I don't think anyone really has the answer. No, no. And in yeah. fact, I was with a client the other day, Lee and I were running, facilitating a, an event with 160 staff in, uh, in London. And they had an expert 
um, whatever that means in diversity, equality, and inclusion. And their big their big statement was, well, we're we all, you know, unconscious bias, we are all suffering from bias. We all have our biases. Well, of course you do, mm-hmm. because it's your upbringing and the way you see the world. We see the world not as the world is, but the way we are. Um, that I think recognizing that we do have a bias and, and trying to get other perspectives helps. Resilience next, Jamie. You, as you set things up on your own uh, and you had those highs and those lows, you've had to be very resilient. And and how have you picked yourself up in times of adversity? You seemed a very disciplined, a very driven person. But um, yeah. when things don't work out for you, you're keen on learning from it and moving on. But um, what's your tip? Yeah, so this this is probably the the only other. So I mentioned uh, I was kind of good um, from day one at emotional intelligence. I think resilience was my other sort of day one superpower. And that's it. Everything else I was, I was pretty sort of bang average at. Um, uh, in fact, I had a I had a nickname at my old company, the Iceman. Could never <laughs> really get too flapped um, one way or another. The so I, like I think probably a good chunk of that is genetic, as in you just you to an extent you are you are who you are. But the um, I think a lot of it also comes down to the way that I think about things. So when when something goes wrong, let me uh, if I give you an example. Let's say I've been let's say I'm working on. We're working on a big deal as a business and we're working on it for multiple months and it, it's going to have a huge impact to everyone involved. And in the last minute, it falls apart and it falls apart for a reason that was effectively nigh on impossible to have predicted and very, very difficult to have um, come out with a with another result. You know, I will, you know, the way my mind works is I will analyze what exactly happened with that deal, establish why it fell apart and what we could have conceivably done different to have fixed it. Um, And I will always find something. Now I might find something that's absolutely tiny and it's completely unreasonable to have expected us to have foreseen it. And I might find something that actually, if we'd have done it differently, it maybe would have only had like a 1% impact on the chances of a successful result, but I will always find something. And then in finding that, that allows me to take complete accountability for what happened. So the reason why that deal fell apart, it wasn't bad luck. It wasn't because the universe was against me. It was because I didn't do good enough. You know, I have control of it. And I think I think it ticks two it ticks two boxes that help with resilient resilience. The first box is is control, as in, no, I do control my life and I do control these outcomes, which I find is a lot more motivating than just thinking it's all down to good or bad fortune uh, and secondly it ticks the box of personal development of well this happened i've learned lessons from it so it's actually not it's not necessarily a completely bad thing there are positives i've taken from it as well which diminishes the setback now it, it doesn't it doesn't work for everyone i think there's some people that if you if they had that mindset you know it ends up in a fairly dark place where they're taking accountability for absolutely everything and they ended up, you know, ends up having an impact on their self-esteem. But for me, for me, it works really well. And it, it works, it works universally in business. I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily work in life generally. Like there are things that can go wrong in your life that that's not a helpful approach to take. You know, if you've got know, a health issue or something like that, it, it's not, it's not applicable, but in business, in my experience, it's applicable to pretty much dare I say it, everything definitely yeah. most things it's applicable you can find something 
that's a learn and also something that you could have done differently. And for me, it's just, it's bringing that ownership to yourself, taking accountability and then, then moving on. Yeah, lovely. Uh, next uh, two are brand and then legacy. And then we talk executive team's favorite book and a top tip. Um, very briefly, brand, you, you're about to learn what people say about you when you're not in the room. We, we're going to do a 360, you and I. But what mm-hmm. is the the one thing you're expecting to come out in the 360 is an area that you know people are going to say you could improve? Um, approachability. Mm-hmm. You know, I've done lots of 360s before. Um, it's always there, and it's been there for it's been there for years. I think I think part of it is there because of you know, I do a fairly big job and I'm sitting at a fairly senior level and to a certain extent it comes with the territory, but there's definitely, and like on some approach, when I, when I say approachability, I mean specifically approachability with criticism, i.e. people coming to me and telling me that um, they don't agree with the decision I've made, or, you know, they think um, I could have done something a slightly better way or something like that. I think, uh, you know, that will be on there. Yeah. Okay. Well, we look forward to that, Jamie. Uh, legacy. Um, what would you like on your gravestone as your legacy in your work and in your personal life with your daughters and your partner? So I think uh, personal life, it's just a, a happy, non-dysfunctional family left behind. <laughs> and I think I think a happy family doesn't necessarily correlate, correlate always with um, business success. I think it's something that needs to be worked at very hard so that that's kind of all i want on the personal side um on the on the business side um a legacy of actually having made a lot of people around me very successful and into multi-millionaires um you know it's what we try and do in the organization here we try and offer that path so that people can that you know it's completely open-ended and people can achieve anything they want to achieve um and i'd love to be in a position you know, where I can point to a number of people um, and they're also, when they're tracking back their ultimate success they've had in life, they're, they're tracking it back to that moment where they first met me and, and decided to join this organisation and, and go on that journey. And what was the Lamborghini like? Did you enjoy it once you bought it? Um, it was really cool, but I highly, I didn't really end up driving it very much. So I had to sell it after six, six months. <laughs> so it was, it was good. It was good to scratch the itch, but um yeah, probably underused that one a bit. Yeah, that's good. Okay, um, executive teams. You know, you're, you're in the business of hiring people, pulling teams together. Uh, in your own experience, in your own business, uh, what have you done when you've got a toxic team? It's gone slightly bad and you need to make it a high-performing team. If there was one tip, we haven't got very long, what would be your top tip about turning a team around? Uh, okay, so for, to- for a toxic team, I mean, toxic team, I'm, I'm really thinking about sort of toxic people specifically uh, a toxic leader um i think you just need to have a very candid conversation with them so they're left in completely clear terms what your view is of what they're doing and and how they can go about remedying it um and then you need to set a very tight time frame in which you need to see change and then if you don't see substantive change then you need to basically move on um like i've developed lots of people lots of teams over the years and success rate in turning an underperformer into an a, a good performer is very high. Um, success rate in turning a toxic individual or a toxic team into a, a non-toxic individual or non-toxic team is substantially lower. Um, 
I just think I think it's very difficult um, and you need to you know be very clear, very clear on what your expectations certainly give them a chance to change. And the best way of doing that is with complete candor in in, in what your thoughts are on their behavior and also the consequences on whether they you know, if they continue with that. Um, but you can't let it drag out for long. You know, I've made that mistake way too many times. Yeah, very good. Um, favorite book uh, on leadership, if you were to recommend a book or two. Um, uh, I really enjoyed No Rules Rules recently. The one out on Netflix that read Hastings. Um, sheer readability of the book is very good. Like you can, it's a very easy read. Uh, I like their principles approach to how they treat their people. I think a lot of the stuff you couldn't necessarily lift out wholesale and apply to your organization because, you know, Netflix have got the brand that they've got and they've effectively got an unlimited budget on a lot of these things. So it's not necessarily massively useful, but it was, it, it was a good book. Um, I think probably my favorite book over the last few years is uh, Principles by Ray Dalio. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't actually massively enjoy the read. I found the read a bit dense, but in terms of, the culture that he espouses there at his company, um, Bridgewater, um, and also the principles-based approach to leadership and, and running a business, um, I found I found very inspirational um, and, yeah, really useful book, that one. Great, thanks. So, Jamie, we're just uh, at the end now. If you would kindly introduce yourself again, what your business does, and give us your two-minute top leadership tip, please. Um, hi there, my name is Jamie Woods. I'm CEO and founder of JCW Group and also CEO and founder of uh, Search Capital. Um, my top tip is all about the importance of self-awareness. Um, I found in business that generally people have quite a good understanding of their strengths, but they don't necessarily have as good an understanding of their weaknesses and their liabilities. Um, in my experience, everyone out there in business, no matter what you may have achieved, you will have some kind of substantial weakness and that weakness can conceivably have a very negative impact on your your goals and your business if left unmanaged. So my tip is to make sure you identify what those weaknesses are, whether that's through psychometric testing, anonymous 360s, full and frank conversations with the people that know you best, um, or even just sort of spending a lot of time uh, reflecting on yourself you know, understand what those weaknesses are and then take appropriate action. The action being to make sure the role that you're doing is structured towards your strengths and away from your weaknesses. Um, and also that the team around you uh, is structured accordingly, i.e. you have people in your team whose strengths counteract your weaknesses and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if, if anyone's out there thinking that they don't have any weaknesses or their weaknesses don't pose any kind of risk to their organization, then you're probably kidding yourself and you need to find out what they are. Brilliant. Well, Jimmy Woods, thank you very much indeed for being on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. Uh, it's you. been an absolute honor and I wish you every success. Thank you, Jonathan. Great, great to be here. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. 
But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.